Big Issues, Big Names, an interview every month. It's Not That Simple, a podcast from Francisco Manuel dos Santos Foundation. Hello and welcome to another episode of It's Not That Simple from the Francisco Manuel dos Santos Foundation. Today's topic is going to be Brexit and we are going to have a uh, renowned specialist explain to us why Brexit is not that simple. Our Daniel Kellerman is a well-known writer, author, and also the professor at the Department of Political Science at Rutgers University in New York. His area of specialization is the European Union, and he's published a variety of works on this topic. Now, it would be fair to say that Brexit has gone a little bit under the radar in uh, the international news agenda, considering that it has been dominated by the COVID-19 pandemic, and then the war in Ukraine. However, that does not mean that this topic is not influencing the way in which the United Kingdom and the European Union are doing business together and influencing the political and economic landscape across the continent. So it'll be a pleasure to speak with today's guest about this topic. Dan, it's a pleasure to have an opportunity to speak with you uh, today. Um, let's get going and let's be honest as well. I think it'd be fair to say that for the British government, it's been pretty lucky that we've had a pandemic and now a war because this topic of Brexit hasn't really been on the news agenda as much as it would have been otherwise. Is that is that fair to say? It's absolutely fair. Uh, it's, it's a bit brutal to think like this, mm. but if we're honest about it politically, uh, the pandemic has been a godsend for the Brexiteers uh, in particular because it really the timing coincided so well uh, with the first economic impacts of Brexit that it really disguised them. And now, of course, with the war in Ukraine, that's a, a, a new factor that gives the government an excuse for uh, some of the moves it's making. So how much of a disaster, in your opinion, has Brexit been for, for the UK and how has it impacted the main industries in, in the country and then also the standard of living? Well, economically, there's no question that it's been a disaster. I mean, let's go back now and, and let's put this in context. No one's saying that Brexit is putting the UK back into the Stone Ages or something like that. Mm. Uh, but uh, so it's not, you know, turning it into uh, you know, a developing country, of course not, but it's a real sizable impact. The first uh, really good study on this that was in pre-pandemic 2019 showed that already just in the three years between 2016 and 2019, the British economy was 3% smaller than it would have been. That was the estimate if, if not for Brexit. So it's having a real impact. And then um, some recent studies have showed dramatic impacts on exports and trade with the EU down as much as 25% um, by some estimates. 25% is a huge number. Uh, I, I lived in the UK for, for seven years. I have a lot of international friends who still live there. And they've also said how much it's impacted not only the price of some basic goods in, in supermarkets, but, but mm -hmm. also uh, services and, and employment uh, and not only in the financial center of the city, but also basic services and restaurants, so on. Uh, are, are people there, and I'm talking about more the British people, really aware of how much it is due to Brexit and how much it is other factors, which I guess the government also tries to use to distract them? 
I don't think they're very aware. I mean, as you said, uh, services are really crucial. Let's keep in mind that uh, ser the service industries are 80% of the British economy. There's understandably a lot of focus on goods in uh, trucks moving back and forth, and, and that has been affected as well, but it's really services and humans uh, and, and the workers, um, of, of which of course there were more than 3 million EU citizens living in the UK and working uh, before Brexit. And so everything from hotels to restaurants, many of these industries were heavily dependent on migrants from Europe, and they've had a hard time finding staff. But I don't think most British people are aware, precisely because that coincided with the pandemic and the travel restrictions, and so that could be blamed. Let's, let's look at this from the European Union standpoint, because obviously it was very difficult to understand, let's be honest. And then once it happened, how has it affected that relationship? And not only with trade, but uh, the political dynamic between between both the continent and, and the islands, I guess. Well, I, th I think it's had very damaging effects because the course of the negotiations, as you'll remember, it's been very fraught where uh, there was a lot of feeling from the EU side of bad faith negotiations coming from some of the uh, British negotiating teams. Mm -hmm. And there are still tensions over Ireland and Northern Ireland. Just this week, um, or in the past yeah, week or two, uh, we had announcements from Jacob Rees-Mogg, the British Opportunities Minister, as they call him, that they might even be tearing up the Northern Ireland Protocol. So I think there's been a lot of tension. At the same time, in particular in the context of things like the war in Ukraine, which I'm sure we'll talk about, there's definitely an effort on both sides to uh, remind each other of the importance of the not only the economic but the security ties. Do Do you think that the pandemic actually worked to keep uh, uh, the 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 European Union and and the United Kingdom uh, uh, collaborating more closely than they would have been had they not been dealing with the with the pandemic? Well, uh, I think unfortunately less than one would have hoped because. Right. At the beginning of the pandemic response, there was a lot of tension uh, between the two sides about uh, you know, some of the things about imports of uh, the materials needed for production of vaccines, uh, about the approval of different vaccines and kind of recriminations on both sides. I think the, the UK government was really trying to make a, a big point of the fact that they rolled out their vaccination campaign uh, very quickly and trying to sell that as a benefit of Brexit. So that also led to some tensions. When it comes to, to the, 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 dynamic, the, 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 the dynamic of, of, of the relationships between uh, uh, the, the United Kingdom and, and the, the, the EU and the, the kind of power shifts that have existed in, in Europe, and we'll talk about the French elections in a moment, um, do, do you think that the way that the, the British also dealt with the pan pandemic and a little bit of all these current uh, scandals and, and, and uh, uh, speculative stories regarding Boris Johnson and, and his government have changed the way that Europe sees Great Britain and their, and their standing? Well, I, I think uh, people are able to distinguish Boris Johnson as a personality. I think there's a good understanding across a lot of Europe. He's covered a lot in the media that he is a, a rather odd character. And I, I think despite uh, maybe some of the ill feelings about him and his government, there's still really a, a fondness and a, 
uh, respect and admiration for many things in Britain across many European countries. So I think the the good relations can kind of outlast him and his government. But certainly for now, uh, he has uh, been a sort of source of tension in relations. Yeah, odd character is a good way to put it, uh, uh, Dan. Um, <laughs> do you think that, that, that Brexit could ever be reversed if it continues to be a disaster and if there's not another story that takes away from its uh, from its relevance and it really starts becoming something that the British government and, and, and the British people especially uh, uh, react? One never wants to say never in politics, but I see it as highly, highly unlikely and certainly no time in the near future. And in fact, I'd say in retrospect, maybe one of the mistakes of some of the, the people who were in the Remain camp in the UK who really wanted to maintain membership was to try to uh, block Brexit before it happened. Remember, some were trying to get a second referendum to stop it or now saying it should be reversed. I think that we have to accept that for better or worse, and I think for worse, this has happened and mm. the the two sides need to work on uh, building as close a relationship as possible going forward rather than trying to reverse it. I mean, frankly, if nothing else, I'm not sure the EU would be so eager to have the UK back in right away if they applied, uh, just in light of everything that's happened. When And we mentioned uh, uh, Boris Johnson and, and his leadership a little bit. I mean, and it's it's hard to, to uh, have a look at the at the national newspapers on a week-to-week basis without uh, uh, some kind of, of uh, uh, behavior, either from, from Boris Johnson or someone prominent in the uh, Tory government uh, uh, being painted in, 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 in bad light. But uh, he, he has also been compared a little bit to, to Donald Trump. Um, is that fair? And, and how much is the Tory party to blame here regarding the way in which Great Britain is 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 conducting internal and and international politics well i think the comparison is fair uh, there's of course some key differences in the the two of them as as people but both of them uh, i think relied on this strategy in fact boris johnson was interviewed about this once i think he referred to it as a dead cat strategy where sort of one scandal after another that uh, and and one sort of uh, outrageous statement in the press is a, a, a technique he uses to distract attention from past scandals. So that kind of leads to the the pattern you were describing there. So I, I think there's a parallel in their strategy, and they're uh, both been they were both very successful in manipulating the media. Um, and so I th- yeah, I think it's a fair parallel. Uh, uh, and actually, that brings up an interesting point because the feeling I get, and I'm not uh, an expert at all, but since I'm speaking with one. I wanted to get your, your, your opinion on this, on, on how much um, there, is, there is still a preoccupation with political parties uh, to um, respect core human values and many times uh, uh, also respect the truth when it comes to hanging on to power. Because the feeling I get is that across the international landscape, politics is becoming increasingly polarized. Obviously, social media has a lot to do with that. There's less and less people who are in the center. You're either uh, a far right or far left, or, or it's at least trending that way. First of all, do you agree with that? And second of all, what can be done so that parties and politicians are held accountable 
for uh, uh, propagating lies and ideology that is just basically uh, doesn't have any foundation on the truth. Well, I think it's absolutely true what you described. There's been a great polarization um, on both sides of the Atlantic that certainly happened here in my country, but in many countries yeah. across Europe, we've seen this. And I think with that polarization, what happens, uh, politics becomes more like a team sports where if you think mm -hmm. about when you're watching a football match or something, you, the, you decide first which is your team and then your interpretation of everything depends on that. You scream at the referee, oh, they're always wrong, that sort of thing, if they do anything against your team. And politics has become like that where people don't, let's say, maybe scrutinize the politician and things they say uh, as much as they should, but they just uh, assume you're on my team, you must be right, the other guys uh, must never win and they're unacceptable. So that that's the kind of toxic atmosphere. In terms of what can be done about it, I think... Uh, the biggest thing is just to maintain pluralism uh, in, in politics. As long as you have enough competing voices there is, uh, and uh, free media, then there's always hope for someone, some principled leader to call out those kind of falsehoods and that sort of thing. Where it gets dangerous is when anyone gets too much of a stranglehold on power and on um, the media as well. Well, there's no doubt about it. And obviously we know the case in, in the States. Uh, with, with Donald Trump, but th there seems to be a trend even in Europe for more autocratic leaders. And, and I know something that you've written about and something you're, you're worried about is, is democratic backsliding. Uh, when, when you look at what's happening in, in, in Europe, whether that's in, in Poland, in Hungary, uh, uh, in, in, in Slovenia, uh, until recently, we also had had a leader there that was that, that was quite extreme in his in his ideology. How worried should we we be about this in Europe? Because we're we're on we're on the border of a lot of these countries. Well, I, I think you should be very worried. Frankly, I've I've said for a long time that if you think of the different crises the EU has faced over the past decade or so, and there have been a lot of them: the eurozone crisis, the migration crisis, Brexit, you know, the pandemic, etc. Well, one, one of those crises that has received, I think, the least attention, but in, in a way is the most threatening, is this uh, rise of autocracy crisis. And Hungary is a great example uh, where uh, by all kind of measures of experts and um, ranking organizations, the government of Hungary no longer qualifies as a democracy. It's a, a kind of soft authoritarian government. And when someone's sitting in Portugal, that may seem very far away. And you may think, well, that's the problem of the people in Hungary. But the problem is that if you're in a union together, right, uh, the European Union, then it's it's sort of like the idea of uh, the, the reason we don't have smoking sections in airplanes, right? Because smoke in one section will spread to fill the cabin. And likewise, if you have autocracy in one EU member state, well, they'll try to spread that uh, in Brussels and it could affect you eventually far across the continent. That's a great analogy, and it takes me back to when I was actually uh, uh, traveling and when I went to study in the States, I had the, the transatlantic flight, and it was impossible to avoid people smoking in the 90s on an airplane. It was an absolute nightmare, and I've never heard that comparison. I think it's, it's a very, very adequate and, and visual one. I think it works, it works very well, and, and we have seen, I mean, and, and if there were uh, uh, any people who were ignoring what was happening in, in Central and Eastern Europe, 
You have the case in, in France, right, with the elections and how close Marine Le Pen came to, to beating Emmanuel Macron. How, what's your reading of that, of that situation? And how much of a bullet has the EU dodged? Well, the EU dodged the biggest possible bullet because as bad as it is to have um, a far-right autocratic leader in a, a country like Hungary, um, we can imagine how much worse it would be to have such a leader or an aspiring autocrat, let's call her, uh, um, in one of the leading EU member states, one of the biggest, most influential like France. And certainly she had toned down some of her rhetoric and she was no longer pushing for France to exit the EU as she had in the past. That's in part because of Brexit and how bad it went. But nevertheless, uh, someone like her in power would have been a real threat. And it's you know, it's not just her sort of far right ideology, which some some of us, most of us, I would hope would reject. But it's what the leaders like that tend to do once they get in power, which is they consolidate authority, try to uh, shut down independent press and judiciary and move their countries in an autocratic direction. Look, I, I think I think uh, uh, everybody that I talk to, both from the in, in Portugal, an international community of, of expats living here, I think everybody was was shocked at how close that that was, uh, leading into the second to the second round round of voting. So uh, I think especially alarming was the, the timing of it, considering that we have seen uh, uh, the links to to Russia uh, and and the the the. I guess the maximum exponent of, of autocratic leader in, in Europe at the moment that is, of course, Vladimir uh, Putin. Um, wh what do you think the, 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 the situation there uh, is doing to, to wake Europeans up to, to, to the dangers of, of democratic back backsliding? Well, uh, you know, certainly in, in a general sense, first of all, I think... Uh, the, the invasion of Russia of Ukraine and the threat uh, of the very aggressive uh, regime in Moscow is certainly pulling Europe together in a general sense, right? And it's um, uh, encouraging a push to strengthen the common uh, security policies of the EU. So that's one thing. But it also is reminding people yeah, of the threats of authoritarianism and reminding people that Putin had certain allies across the EU, because, of course, he has been funding some of these far right and autocratic parties and cultivating close ties with them. With Viktor Orban, who we talked before, is uh, the closest ally of Putin within the EU, sometimes vetoes EU actions kind of on Putin's behalf. And then on the other hand, you have parties like Le Pen's party that got their uh, financing and banking uh, mm -hmm. at earlier stages through banks associated with the Kremlin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and, and uh, I mean, for me, it's 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 tragic what's happening in, in the Ukraine, obviously. But uh, at the moment, uh, what's equally scary, if not more, is is how that crisis will eventually be resolved and if it will spill over into other areas of, of, of Eastern Europe. In your opinion, what, what, is the, what is the danger of that and how far would the EU and NATO go before they, they, they draw a line in the sand? Well, first, I, I think um, Putin will not invade a NATO country. And there's been a lot of debate, of course, uh, about NATO enlargement whether it was a good idea or bad idea, that sort of thing. But I think one thing we can see clearly is that there's a huge distinction 
between being in NATO and not, which is the countries that are in NATO ha have benefited from that uh, protective umbrella. And he, he won't try to provoke uh, a response there. Uh, however, I think in terms of this question of involvement, in a sense, we're already involved. True, there's no direct fighting, thank goodness, and everyone's doing everything to avoid NATO engaging militarily uh, with uh, Russia. However, we're already supplying heavy weaponry on a mass scale to Ukraine. So we're directly involved in the conflict uh, in that sense. And, and as you look ahead to the next, I guess it's so difficult to look ahead to a decade uh, these days because everything moves so quickly. But uh, as you look into the, the near future, let's, let's call it, what are the biggest uh, uh, threats to the, to, the EU, to the EU? And going back to, to the UK where we started, where, where, where will the UK's role be politically, economically, and, and what can be the way that the Brexit's going to go from, from now and how it affects the, the, the near future? Okay, well, the, the few things you raised there. I yeah. mean, in terms of some of the biggest threats, well, there's, of course, threats we haven't even talked about, just big global threats like climate change, things like that. The EU is a real leader there. So that's uh, something um, you know, very strong the EU is doing. I think the Russia, as long as Putin is in control, will continue to pose a threat. But more generally, the, the threat from Russia is reminding people also of the vulnerability the EU has because a lot of its key decisions on questions like foreign policy are still done by unanimity, right? And so, for instance, uh, you know, we have some countries, you know, uh, threatening to veto any sanctions on oil and gas uh, that would you know, target Russia. And, and that, that veto is a problem because that means if any hostile power, Russia or even China, can kind of cultivate one ally within the EU, then you know, they can threaten to shut down common actions. So that, that's a threat. And I think the other threat I would mention is just this, this threat of democratic backsliding um, of the emergence of more regimes like Orban's in Hungary. That would be a huge problem for a union that's supposed to be based on democracy. And, and finally, you asked about Britain. I think the big question going forward will just be uh, maybe if we look forward uh, past the Boris Johnson government to a more normal British government, uh, <laughs> if there'll be a prospect for healing relations and bringing the UK and the EU closer together, that would be my hope. Okay, so I have to ask you this as we're wrapping up the main part of the interview. If you, if you could give Boris Johnson any advice and I'm not going to get into internal politics here, but regarding Brexit and the way in which that has worked out and anything that could be amended, what would it be? Well, I'll give it, but I know he wouldn't follow it. My advice would be <laughs> stop lying. Because Boris Johnson, I, I think one can defend Brexit. It, it's the right of any country. This is in the EU treaties. If a country wants to leave the European Union, that's right there in the treaties. There's an exit provision. It's fine to leave the EU. It's a voluntary union, right? The problem with Brexit and the Brexiteers was that they lied so much about the potential costs. They said there would be no costs. It would all be uh, benefits and a wondrous future. And they even <laughs> lied about things like uh, whether they would have to put border checks between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, you know, to resolve the tensions over the borders, et cetera. So they just need to be straight with the people and um, really admit what are the costs and benefits and trade-offs. Honesty, honesty is always a good trait and it leads in 
in, in perfectly into our, our final section, which, which is some quick fire questions that we have for, for all our guests. And uh, so in, in one sentence, I would say, if not in one word, but in one sentence, if I could please ask you to try to answer these, these, these questions that I know could take a lot longer, by the way, but what is one personality trait that a good leader could really benefit from having? Integrity. Yeah, yeah, which is many times forgotten in in uh, in uh, in light of other interests that are in play. Um, in your opinion, what is the biggest challenge humanity is facing today? Climate change, I'd say. It's good that that's still on the agenda. If you could change one thing in the world today by by magic, by supreme power, what what would it be? Uh, end the pandemic. <laughs> yes. Uh, and what is the most important learning of your life and career and why? Uh, I think something my father taught me wasn't his saying. It's an old saying, I think, but it's uh, don't believe your own propaganda. In other words, uh, definitely be honest with yourself uh, you know, about your own uh, abilities, your own weaknesses and uh, all those things. You know, you know thyself and be honest with thyself. Um, Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure to to speak with you here on the on the Foundation Show. Uh, all the best, and uh, let's hope that some senior people in the in the in the British government also have an opportunity to watch this this conversation, this dialogue, and heed some of the advice and insight that you've that you've shared. Thank you. All the best. Thank you so much, Pedro. And that concludes another episode of It's Not That Simple. It was great to get uh, uh, Daniel's insight and expertise on such a crucial topic in the international news agenda. See you again soon. It's Not That Simple is a podcast from Francisco Manuel dos Santos Foundation. Tune in every month at ffms.pt or subscribe on the usual platforms.